It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. UWA 517, do you want to report a UFO? Over? Negative. We don't want to report. Ares 31, do you wish to report a UFO? Over? Negative, we want to report one of those either. Uh, Ares 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind? Over? I wouldn't know what kind of report file, sir. Uh, Ares 31, uh, me neither. Ares 71, Papa Golf, good. Yeah, was anybody a stuff? Uh, above us, the pass was like 30 seconds. Number 71, Papa Golf, negative. Okay. Off this. A UFO. Yeah. Hey, it's American 295. Yeah, something just passed over. It's a bike up. Don't know what it was, but it's from at least two, three thousand 3,000 feet above us. So yeah, it passed right over the top of us. 911. You guys busy? Did we just call about the UFOs we thought? They're out there. Same yeah. airplanes. Welcome to UFO Chronicles, a place where people share their experiences of the strange and unexplained. If you've had an encounter and would like to be on the show, you can email me at UFO Chronicles at gmail.com Hello everyone and welcome to the show wherever in the world you are joining us from. I hope you're all doing good this week. I'm Nick Hunter and you're listening to the UFO Chronicles podcast. Tonight we meet Michael in California, and Michael will be sharing the abuse he survived by his demon-possessed mother. His mother not only terrorized the family, but also the neighbors in a small northern Ontario town in Canada in the 70s and 80s. Michael, up next. If you enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to help support my work, there is a couple of ways to do this. Either you can join Patreon and become a patron of the show for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate via PayPal. And if you like, you can set up monthly reoccurring payments. All links to support the podcast are below in the show notes and on the website. Any help is extremely appreciated, and it helps the show to continue running. Now, on with the show.
Hello, Michael. Good morning and welcome to the podcast. Good morning. And uh, it's an honor to be with you here coming from California. I know you're in the UK there. And uh, yes, it is morning here still. I know for you it's not. It's late afternoon, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we're at about eight o'clock now, eight o'clock in the evening. So we're just we're just a few oh, hours wow. ahead of you. We're also <laughs> we're also coming out of a heat wave as well. So it's still hot in the studio. <laughs> well, I think I've got you beat here. It's one hundred and seventeen today in Palm Desert. One hundred and seventeen, Craig. It was one hundred and two yes. yesterday here. Yeah. Well, we have no humid, so it's uh, no humidity, so it's a dry heat. I right. don't know if that matters at one seventeen. Nice. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's about 117 in the studio actually saying that. I've got no I've got no fans on. Okay. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Uh, now, Michael, your experiences go back to the 70s and 80s. Would you like to yeah. let the listeners know a little bit about yourself and uh, what you experienced during those years, please, sir? Well, um, I was born in 68 in, uh, in a borough in Canada, in Ontario, which is near the East Coast, uh, just upstate from, from Buffalo. And we have boroughs there, just like they do in, in New York. You've got the Bronx and Queens and so on, but we've got boroughs. And I was born in one of those boroughs. It's uh, an Italian borough, because I'm Italian, called Etobicoke, which is actually an Indian name, which means place of the alders. So it's actually Indian land. But uh, yeah, I was born in 68. And I think by the time I was, uh, we, we lived in and around... Um, Ontario, the Toronto metropolitan area, uh, for the first, uh, four or five years of my life. Um, but I can remember around the age of three, we were living in Mississauga. And, uh, I think it was the very first account that, that really threw me kind of for a loop. I think it was about three and a half, you know, around three and a half. So this would bring us to around 1971. Uh, maybe 72 somewhere in that vicinity and being a an italian child you know we would always have um uh this star soup kind of americans and probably in the uk you would notice know that children eat like a star soup well we have this soup called pasta fasule and um usually i get that at lunch at lunchtime and my mother would call me to the table and, uh, it, you know, the bowl would be sitting there and, you know, I'd come to lunch, you know, be watching Sesame Street or something. And this one particular time, uh, I went and sat down in the chair and it wasn't there. And my mother came up behind me and dumped the whole pot of hot soup down my left shoulder. So that was uh, the beginning of something very strange. And. My mother ended up calling the uh, calling a taxi, and then we head uh, head on over to the doctors. She never consoled me, never said a word, um, never hugged me, never kissed me, never did anything. There was an absolute disconnect there. We went to the doctors, came home, and I don't remember my mother from that point on ever like, having a conversation with me or speaking. Uh, she became she began to be very distant, very uh, disconnected. And uh, I think it was six months later, we ended up moving into a house where subsequently she began to uh, tell my sister, who was seven years older than me at the time, so she was probably 10, 10 or 11 years old, uh, much more uh, aware than me, even though I was an extremely aware and analytical child. Um, she started, uh, my mother started telling us that she was hearing voices and uh, seeing things around the house and, and, you know, hearing knocking and scratching and all this kind of, kind of business. And, uh, we were living in a house at the time when all that was going on, we had moved into this house. And I remember, I remember as a child, you know, going to sleep and having your door open a little bit. And I remember the adults, um, most importantly, my mother's sister, who was, you know, my aunt, and uh, they were talking about the seances and things like this, you know, spiritual kind of weird cultish things. Because my 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 sister, uh, my aunt was into uh, occult things. You know, eventually, I'll just speed up a little bit on that. 
eventually her daughter ended up committing suicide and hanging herself in a basement, having three kids, which was very bizarre, but uh, definitely part of the uh, entity intrusion that came into our life. Um, Previous to uh, me being born, my mother, my mother's father had an accident, a horrible accident while crossing railroad tracks, uh, we think he was drunk, and a train hit him and cut his legs off. And this was extremely traumatic to my my mother, who adored her father. So my sister and I kind of put two and two together, and uh, you know uh, she was uh, you know mentally rocked by that because she had just adored her father. And I, I think what had happened was you know kind of doing the math here. Um, that her and her sister, my aunt, they tried to summon her father because she was, you know, disillusioned by the whole thing of losing her beloved father. And I think uh, she was very vulnerable at the time. And uh, I think they ended up um, um, inviting a spirit into into my mother's life in that desperation. That's usually what happens during the during the cult. Uh, these kind of practices, and what happened from there? That's my sister seems to to trace the beginnings of all of these strange happenings uh, from that time. So fast forward to um, I'm just about to turn five, and we end up. Something happened in our family. There was some some um, some paradigm shift in our family. And all of a sudden, we abruptly picked up and moved 120 miles away to this isolated little town of 4,000 on uh, Narwasaga Bay. And um, But my dad still would go drive back the entire 120 miles to go work down where we just left from. And he would stay down there five or six days a week. So my father was, was um, a negligent in his appearance um, in our family for many years because he was always working down there. But once we moved to this this isolated town, um, my mother started getting worse. Uh, she started talking to herself uh, very incoherently, couldn't understand a lot of the things she was saying. It was very, uh, uh, very, I know it was, it was disturbing to all of us, uh, but, uh, you know, at that point, you know, because it was so gradual that we just discounted that she was, you know, you know, crazy or not in her right mind or whatever, because it was so, so gradual. So a couple of years passed and she continued in this and it began, it became worse. She began to, um, you know, talk, sit in a chair for all hours of the day from um, sun up till sundown. And just be, you know, talking and uh, she began to talk now in some different different languages and how, like having conversations very quickly between several different people, kind of like a multiple personality kind of thing. And, and that's kind of how we, we took it. We didn't really know, um, you know, how to, to process this. We were just kids and my dad was never there. So we just, for the most part, kind of ignored it. But about the time, about the time I think I was 12 or 13, um, maybe probably 12, I was sitting in class one day in, uh, in public school and uh, there was a knock on the door and some policemen were there and, and uh, there was a couple, a couple people, I don't know who they were, but uh, they called the teacher in and they looked back at me and called my name. So I went up to the front, um, they told me um, I needed to go with who I recognized as my neighbor. I got in the car with him and he told me that there had been an accident. And I was like, oh, well, well what happened? And uh, he proceeded to tell me that my mother tried uh, to kill my sister with a butcher knife, that she had chased her outside and was chasing her around the car. And the neighbors saw this and, uh, you know, subsequently called the police. And the police showed up and they ended up taking her away in a straitjacket to a mental institution. So anyway, I found out later that day after talking to my sister that uh, if I had not um, 
been uh, careless in leaving the doors open because I don't know if you have this in the UK, but uh, in Canada, we have, you know, what's called a mud room. A lot of people on the East Coast in the United States do, too. So you have many doors. You have a door to the living room, then a door to the mud room, and then two doors that lead outside, you know, a heavy door and a, some sort of screen door. And I had left all those doors open, and my sister had told me that if I didn't leave all those doors open, that my mother would have successfully um, killed her, this butcher knife. She told me that uh, she had been hearing voices. Well, my mom had been hearing voices for years, but she said that the voices were telling her to kill my sister because she was a witch. So that was that was the uh, the first big incident that happened. And um, you know, we were interviewed by by the police, which often happened for disturbances at the house. The social social services at the time. Uh, even though my sister, I think, was of age, I was the minor. They didn't know what to. They didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know. They they actually tried to convince me to run away, which I thought was absolutely ridiculous. But um, I think that they had stumbled upon uh, more evidence of uh, how deep problem my mother had, and I think that's what led to them not being able to understand what was going on. And then three months later, my mother returns. So I don't know how that happens. Social services, when you have eyewitnesses, somebody trying, uh, a parent trying to kill children, uh, go figure. I don't know how that all uh, played out, but it was a small town in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I'm actually seeking uh, legal recourse for that right now uh, because um, uh, social services completely failed me. But that's another another subject. But uh, so uh, eventually, three months later, my mother came home. Uh, my father was never there. My sister was uh, of the age uh, 18 or 19 at the time. She moved away. She moved down to Toronto where my dad was working and stayed with my grandmother. So all there was was just me and my mother now. And when she came back, she came back twice as worse, twice as bad. And now she was sitting in her chair from sunup till sundown speaking in multiple languages, cursing, swearing. Her voice would change to this, to these gruff male type of voices that were arguing with each other in different languages. And, you know, I was, I was perplexed. I was uh, puzzled and I was uh, terrified, uh, but didn't know what to do. There, there were times where I was under so much duress during the situation that I would go to a local park and sleep on the picnic table. And then, and then come home because I just didn't want to be there at, at nighttime because nighttime is where things really, really got bad. Um, for probably, I don't know, six years, I weighted down my dresser drawer full of bricks and then pushed the, the dresser drawer, you know, the whole drawer set of drawers against uh, my door at nighttime when I went to bed and I slept with a hockey stick. You know, we're Canadians. We have all these kids have hockey sticks. And I slept in the fetal position, and I actually wore the mattress down to the springs from the pressure from my knee, my hip, and my uh, my shoulder, and my ankle, deep divots, you know, being in the same position. Because my mother tried to enter enter my room every night, every night. And there was always rattling in the night, her screaming in the middle of the night, bloody murder, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, before my sister left, I had my... I lived with my sister, but never saw her. She came out every, every once in a while for food, but you know she quit school, and she was living in her room with a huge padlock on her door. And I didn't even find that that uh, very uh, very weird because uh, you know we all knew that mom was very unpredictable. And but once she started, you know, to try and murder us, that was you know the. Uh, the situation changed and, and my sister fled. Anyway, things began to progress in a very, uh, uh, a spiral decline with my mother. Um, she began to sit in a chair now all day long with these voices talking and singing and, and arguing and, uh, you know, in multiple voices and multiple languages. I had no idea what, what was going on. Uh, you know, my father was never there. He only came up for a few hours on the weekend and took off back home. So, 
You know, he was never there. He witnessed very, very, very little of this. And uh, it, it, she was she began to hit herself with a log across the chest, uh, sometimes for 10, 12 hours a day until she was red and bloody. And uh, this never stopped. It went on and on every day. Uh, I would try to go over to a friend's house for the weekend, you know, 30 minutes away or so, and I would come back. You know, I'd ride my bike up there, and on, on my way back, I would park my bike, and the windows would be open, and I could hear the thuds from outside. And I would go in the house, and there she was, you know, whacking herself with this big log. In fact, she set the house on fire several times and never stopped her shenanigans of hitting herself and cursing and swearing and yelling and, and while the firemen came right into our living room. It was the most bizarre thing. And but as I look back on it, it was bizarre. But at the time, it was, you know, I didn't really think anything of it, you know. And um, it was it was a terrifying 12-year ordeal. And it came to a head uh, one afternoon. It was, uh, I think it was in the summertime. Yeah, it was in the summertime. And um, I was coming home from a, from a long bike ride because I frequently just went out into nature and just, you know, sometimes I slept out in the park and that kind of thing. And, you know, being out in nature was therapy that I needed. And at this, by this time I was in high school and I was really beginning to lose my mind. I was beginning to fail classes and not show up to school anymore. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really weird that no one from school, like tried to contact us or, you know, back then you didn't have answering machines, so you just had a phone and it rang and rang and rang and rang. Nobody answered it. You know, the people gave up. But um, so little was done to help me, since it was just me at that point now, that it was unbelievable now that I look back on it and see what uh, what um, what a travesty it really was for a child to be in that situation. No help. Even though all the neighbors knew what was going on. I'm not sure they knew that she was demonically possessed, but uh, such was the case. But she would go and knock on their doors and say in a gruff, you know, man's voice that she was going to cut their heads off. I mean, this is the kind of thing that went on, you know, daily. So the police were at our house all the time and nothing was ever done. And not that, you know, when I was a child, I, you know, realized that anything should be done because I didn't know how the world worked. But now as an adult and with the suffering that I have now from severe PTSD for the last 40 years, I haven't been able to have a, a full-time job or or be able to socialize that much with people. You know, I hate, you know, loud bangs and all kinds of crazy lights and stuff like that. And, and it's just been such a horrible struggle. But I think I was 16 at the time when this thing came to a head and I was thinking it's going to be either my mother or me, one of us is going to kill each other because it was, this was nonstop every day. And I was becoming very, very terrified. And my body chemistry changed so bad that even after I left this situation, I didn't go through puberty until I was like 21 um, because my chemistry was so, so out of whack. But, um, I remember one day coming home and I parked my bike upstairs uh, and came down the stairs into the basement. We have two sets of stairs, one one set from inside the house going down to the basement, one set from outside the house. And uh, I came down the stairs and I saw my mother there. Um, let me just back up a bit. She had been for the last many years been eating like a ravenous animal. And my father had to put what little food we had in one of those big freezers, you know, the kind that can hold a body. <laughs> they're, they're pretty big. And he put a chain on it because she was eating us out of house and home that, you know, for the last several years, I was stealing, stealing food at kids' lunches at school and, and um, you know, eating apples on the road and, and all this kind of stuff to stay alive. It was, it was, uh, uh, it was just uh, uh, insanity um, now that I look back of how I was surviving like a feral kid. And um, so uh, this day when I came downstairs, uh, I saw my mother 
with a hacksaw trying to cut the chain off the off the freezer and my initial reaction was I just yelled out hey and she was bent over and she just cocked her head to look at me all her hair was in her eyes I mean I need to give you a picture of her at this time she was extremely unkept she stunk to high heaven she, all her teeth were broken uh, she would you know, when I would walk across the living room, she would wag her tongue at me and go, you know, like a deaf mute type of person. But, uh, you know, she spoke and, you know, was having these conversations all day long, you know. And so all her teeth were broken, all her molars, her front teeth, everything was chipped. And her tongue was all serrated on both sides because of her biting it or whatever, because of all her broken teeth. And at this point, she was uh, she was four eleven, and she weighed uh, excess of two hundred and fifty pounds. She was extremely obese. And uh, that moment when I yelled at her at the basement, I said, "Hey!" She looked at me, and she was growling at me uh, with this very low voice. I mean, she's four eleven. Her normal speaking voice, which I hadn't heard in decades, was was high because she was uh, so short. But uh, she looked at me, she growled at me with this gruff man's voice, uh, clearly not her own. She threw down the hacksaw and then ran upstairs. And for some reason, because I was like drawn like a moth, I wanted this to end. So I wanted a conflict. So I chased her up the stairs. She actually beat me up the stairs, which was she was very cumbersome and heavy. But at that moment, she sprung those stairs and I was in like shock and I I chased her she outran me went to her bedroom and slammed the door and I'm looking at the door and all I hear is it begin to crack a little bit as it's bulging out and she's holding the doorknob and you know I'm by that time 16 17 years old I'm like I'm six feet you know 130 pounds I was pretty skinny kid because I was starving to death, but um, I was uh, very nimble and, you know, I presumed stronger than her. Yeah, I tried to turn the, the doorknob, but I couldn't turn the, the doorknob. And I could hear her growling behind the door, which was freaking me out. But I knew that this had to to come to a head. It, this had to end because my mental status was I was breaking down. I was even contemplating doing a, you know, some sort of suicide note or, you know, something at, at uh, my high school, you know, how kids do to reach out for help, you know, when they don't realize they need help. Anyway, I was standing at the door and um, I was waiting, you know, to gain entrance. And all of a sudden the, the door started to bow back to its original position. And I saw the doorknob went limp. So I kind of wringed my hands a little bit, rubbed my hands together, and went and swung the door open. And when, they, when I swung the door open, my mother was standing there growling at me with these black eyes. She had no, no pupil. And the left side of her eyebrow was bulging back and forth about, I'd say, three, three quarters the size of a golf ball. From the top of her her eyebrow on the very left side to her temple, you know, much like you would. Um, I always say it's like you know if you're uh, you know holding a balloon really tight and you squeeze one side of the balloon and it bulges out the other. Well, that's what was going on her, with her forehead and her jet black eyes and her growling at me in this you know in inhuman voice that did it that freaked me out i started running she started chasing me i ran outside once again i left all the doors open i ran outside on, onto the uh, driveway to the end of the driveway and i noticed that she wasn't following me and then all of a sudden i heard the slam of her bedroom door that shook all the panes of the windows in our entire house so violently i thought that they were gonna you know, they were going to burst. So I'm standing at the end of the driveway trying to contemplate what I just heard and saw, uh, taking this experience in. And I'm 
I'm sitting at the driveway and I'm saying, okay, I need to just say a word, say a word out loud. And I was going, (laughs) I couldn't breathe. And I was, I was in absolute, you know, an absolute state of shock is the only way I can put it. And um, I realized that, that this was a Saturday afternoon, one of the small increments of time that my father happened to be, to be uh, in town. And I knew where he was and I knew the phone number. So I went to the door, I reached in, we, we had a, you know, back in those days was a dial phone and uh, rotary. And it was just inside the door of the mudroom in the living room. So I reached in, I grabbed it, had a long, long cord. And I, I proceeded to take it outside on the front porch. And I tried to dial the number where my dad was at. And it took me, I would say, 15 to 20 minutes because I was in such shock. My hand was shaking so bad I couldn't get my finger in the hole. And I couldn't get, you know, do the right numbers. And when you've got to do, you know, you know, seven numbers all in a row perfectly, it was very hard for me to do because my fingers, my hand was trembling so bad. When I was successful in dialing the number, um, the lady answered and uh, she recognized my voice and she called my dad and my dad, my dad got on the phone and he said, what's going on? What's going on? And I, and I couldn't say anything. I was still good. <laughs> so he said, okay, I'm coming home. So within a minute, I knew he was just about a mile away. He came home and I tried to talk. I still couldn't talk. I was in such, such shock. So he began to walk towards the front door and I followed him. When he got in the mudroom and opened the next door to the living room, my mother was standing there, uh, be it 4'11". She grabbed my father, who was 5'8", 5'7", 5'8", 160, 170 pounds. She grabbed him by the arms or the shoulders, somewhere in there. I couldn't see because I was behind him. And he went flying to the ground. And she jumped on top of him and began scratching maniacally at his face and growling. And I was just standing there shaking. I didn't know what to, what to do. I didn't know. I was, I was in absolute panic, you know, shaking, holding my face and, you know, clenching my fist. I didn't know what to do. Um, a couple of minutes of that, my dad was able to break free, break free and he ran outside. And the second he ran outside, I ran outside with him. And that was the first time I saw my dad in a state of shock. Uh, he realized that this was not uh, the wife that he had married, you know, 25 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever. But um, he was completely in shock. And um, we were standing out there on the driveway. And then he, uh, he, you know, because I had the phone out there, he grabbed the phone and he called the police department. And the police department called the mental institution. And all these people show up in my driveway. I've got a couple police cars. I've got uh, the the mental institution. Um, it's kind of like a big, it looks like a SWAT vehicle, except it's white. Uh, a SWAT vehicle like today, like a big box. And it wasn't an ambulance. It was like this big box. And, uh, you know, they, you know, proceed in the house you know they didn't even they barely they didn't talk to me because i i couldn't even speak they said something to my dad and then they went um several of them went inside and went into my mother's room now my mother's room's window was open and it was facing the driveway so i could easily hear them and that was the first time in uh, my 16 17 years of living that i heard my mom's natural speaking voice and they said to her, you know, what, what's going on here, you know, Mrs. Gagliardi? And, uh, and I heard her say, you know, nothing, officer. I don't understand. I don't understand why you guys are here and, and what's going on. And I was like dumbfounded, absolutely dumbfounded. Um, I had, they had been at our house, the police, many times before, but they had taken us all into separate rooms. And would discuss things. So I wasn't really able to hear her voice. But I remember my sister telling me something that she talked in a normal voice when the authorities got there, which was, you know, very puzzling. Anyway, um, probably 15 minutes later, they brought her out in a straitjacket, loaded her up into the big 
the big uh, box white truck and they took her away. And my father and me just kind of, we, in fact, we've never talked about it to this day. From that day that it happened, we've never said a word to each other about it because it was so traumatic and it was so unearthly and we've never said a word to this day. But the, the interesting thing is that after three months, my dad informed me that she was coming back. And I was in shock that they were going to bring her back after this, this, you know, all of these times that the police had come over, the mental institution, where we got attempted murder, social services isn't doing anything, nobody's doing nothing. And they brought her, they brought her back. Three months later, they brought her back. And I was beside myself. And I didn't know what to do. I, I really didn't know what to do. I was completely, completely um, stupefied by the whole thing. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Introducing the High Strangeness Coffee Blend by Redacted Coffee Company, a medium roast of the Brazilian kind. This medium roast offers flavors of chocolate and vanilla combined with a distinct fruity taste and a unique sweet flora aroma. The experience of high strangeness doesn't end there with a sweet butter aftertaste that doesn't fade as your coffee cools. This coffee regains its flavors all the way through your cup, ensuring it truly is good to the last drop. The veteran-funded, employee-owned Redacted Coffee Company and UFO Chronicles podcast have partnered together to bring you the best coffee on and off the planet. Get 20% off your first order now at redactedcoffee.com forward slash UFO. That's redactedcoffee.com forward slash UFO. Or follow the link below in this episode's description or click on the banner of my website. This podcast is fueled by coffee oozing high strangeness. So what are you waiting for? Wake up to the strange. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I made plans. I made plans to leave. Um, I had went down. Uh, my sister was living in, in um, Toronto at that time. She had left a few years earlier. And uh, I had made plans to go down and live with her. And my father sold the house and uh, got my mother an apartment but in a town about a half an hour away. And uh, what had happened was I came back. I went down to Toronto. And I got a job and I made some money because I was going to leave for California. That's how I ended up in California. I wanted to leave the whole country. I wanted to leave this, uh, this psychosis behind me. <clears throat> I didn't even care if I was homeless, which ended up I was. But three days before I was going to leave, get on a plane and go to California, um, my dad asked me if I wanted to see my mother. And I said, yeah, well, I'll see her one more time. So we drove to her apartment. Um, it was on a main street of a little town. I went up the stairs. I knocked on the door. She opened the door. She never even looked at me. It's as if she knew I was coming. I, she turned around. She never said a word to me. I walked in. I followed her. She went into her bedroom. She sat down on her bed, reached over. And um, from the nightstand, there's a little drawer there. She reached over, grabbed me a, an envelope, handed it to me. Uh, put her feet up on the bed, laid down, and then started going into these and and in these foreign languages and arguing. At that minute, I stood up and I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I was so traumatized by it. So I went downstairs, got in my dad's car, and we went home. Um, a few days later, I left for California. And um, I had been in California, I think, uh, well, I was homeless underneath the Santa Monica Pier, which is the second part of my book uh, that picks up after I left Canada. And um, But I had been in California for like two weeks. I didn't know anybody. I had met somebody there. And I let my cousins know uh, the phone number that I was at. They told my dad, you know, and uh, then I got a phone call two weeks later um, from the friend that I was staying at saying that my mother had died. And I said, oh, oh, okay. I wasn't shocked by it in any means because she was extremely obese. And uh, so I asked them, well, well, you know, what happened? And they said, well, it looks like she died of a heart attack. Um, the, the coroner found her as she was decomposing. You know, she died in her apartment building by herself. And the neighbors could smell the decomposing body. So they told me that place the the date of death was uh uh if i can remember correctly was um was it was the the monday after april the monday it was either the monday after april or the good friday i can't remember but it was on the exact same day that i left for california so it was very um i'm not going to say coincidental that these evil entities took control of her for a purpose and I really believe now that in the last 30 years of my life, I've studied uh, demonology and, and the Bible and, and uh, come to the conclusion that I realize now that I was the, the target. It wasn't my sister. It wasn't my father. It wasn't my mother. She was just the poor, you know, sad vessel, you know, that uh, opened up her life to a wicked entity. And uh, because that's what they want to do. They want to destroy. They've come to destroy, kill, and steal. And this is, uh, that's the ending of the, my first book, The Devil Take the Hindmost. And then Devil Take the Hindmost Part 2, the aftermath, it starts when I came to California. And most people ask me, you know, when we get to this part, they ask me, so, you know, did you have a sense of relief? Well, I'll tell you. When I ended up on, I ended up on the Santa Monica Pier, and um, 
the reason why I ended up on the Santa Monica Pier was because of watching Three's Company. And I think it was the fifth season um, intro to that where they're walking on the pier. And when they're walking away, you see a hotel in the background. I think it's uh, um, Howard Johnson or Hotel. I, I don't remember what it was, but I thought to myself, well, okay, that must be real. That's not a soundstage or something. So that's where I'm going to go. So when I actually landed in Santa Monica, I walked out to the beach. I took my shoes off. I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning. There was nobody on the beach. It was in April. And um, I took my shoes off. I took my socks off. I put my gym bag down. I put my head against it. And I laid down. And for the first time, I felt relief in my entire life. I felt that no one knew where I was because we didn't have cell phones back then. And I was free. It lasted about 10 minutes. And then this overwhelming wave of fear came over me. What do I do next? And that's pretty much the beginning of the second story, uh, the second part of my book. And that second part has a lot to do with uh, what happened to me after that. Um, I look at the first book in part, you know, when I was going through it, it, it was terrible. It was horrific. But what was to come was worse. And now I had to deal with this broken brain, this um, seemingly uh, confused uh, young adult at 19 years old. I have no identity. I don't know who I am. I have insomnia uh, and depression. And how am I going to live life? Um, a lot of people ask me, uh, you know, how were you able to come out here homeless? I said, well, from what I came from, that was a joy. It was a joy to be homeless. Not like I was in Canada freezing to death. You know, I was in Santa Monica, you know, a place that uh, I enjoyed watching on TV. And then the weather was beautiful. And uh, that's part two of the story. And I'm not sure if we have, have time for that, but uh, uh, this is the story thus far. Thank you, Michael. It's, it's a pleasure. It, I think it's very difficult for people to comprehend, you know, the, the, the trauma you experienced at, you know, such a young age. Yeah, 12 years. And even though you, you finally made it out of Canada and headed to California, you know, it wasn't the end, was it? You know, you everything that you'd experienced and the, the love and the nurture, which, you know, you've been denied, you had a, another long road for you, wasn't it? Yes. In, in fact, you know, it wasn't until I met my wife who really was a model for what love meant. Because, you know, love is two ways. If you don't recognize it, um, you don't know what it is. And if you can't recognize it, you can't give it either. And, you know, to this day, I mean, you know, I told you off air that, you know, I'm having, you know, some bad PTSD symptoms today because I've had them for 40 years. Still to this day, I go to sleep with my face almost completely numb and I have to medicate or else I'll pass out from the anxiety and the stress of nighttime. And I wake up with my face all numb. And I have to take other medication to help with that so that I can wake up and be somewhat functional. And, you know, and every time I tell these stories, I mean, you can't see it because this is just audio. But, I mean, I'm shaking right now. I mean, just it, 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 they're triggers, you know, anytime I talk about it. But I'm happy to talk about it because... My children said, you've got to put this book out because just like you always tell us, Dad, that there was no one for you, no one would understand, nobody helped, that maybe somebody who has maybe a similar experience, you know, could understand that, you know, this isn't normal and you need to reach out, you know, because I didn't re recognize that anything was wrong in our home. You know, I grew up with it since I was a little kid. And it's kind of like the proverbial frog in the boiling water. You know, you don't understand that this isn't wrong. And when nobody's stepping in to help, that kind of uh, clarifies that, you know? I mean, right in, right in the books as well. I mean, you're also, I mean, you're not only you getting it on paper and it's, it, it is a form of release for you. You know, you're also educating people that are, you know, are going through experiences like this, whether, you know, it's a family member, someone close to them. And you're right, you know, they, if there's no way to reach out, no one's going to believe you and you, there's no help out there, really, is there? You know, I mean, you, yeah. I mean, your mother was released after three months from psychiatric care. Um, it makes you yeah, wonder, twice. That, twice, exactly. It makes you wonder whether, you know, you said 
she would speak in a normal voice um, when there were officials around, when there was authority around. Yeah. It's quite possible that, you know, when she was in the Institute, she was blagging them, so everything seems normal and fine. Then the minute she's out, you know, problems again. Yes. Yeah. It was very much like that. And, you know, I ended up having, talking to a guy who was, happened to be an exorcist in Canada during the 70s and 80s. And he told me that that was protocol to let her go. And he says, what that means is that she did something beyond their diagnosis in the mental institution. And when it goes beyond their diagnosis, they can't treat something they can't understand. And that's kind of how the policies were, you know, back then. That's why they let her go, which seems ludicrous, you know, from attempted murder, you know, on minors. But uh, he said that was the protocol. So when I was researching, you know, to do this book, I ended up calling the very mental institution that she was in. And I asked for the records and I got a lady in archives and, and she said to me, she said to me, okay, you know, what year? And I said, it would have been, you know, mid seventies to to mid eighties. And she says, oh, we would have thrown those, those, those records away. And she said, well, just for, for curiosity, just give me her name. So I gave the lady my mother's name. And she goes, you know, I hear a clacking on the, on the keys. And she goes, well, that's weird. She goes, all her records are archived off campus. And I said, well, can you retrieve them for, for me? And she says, yes, I'll, I'll do that. She says, there's a $35 fee. And I said, great. I said, no problem. I said, here's my phone number. Call me when you retrieve them. Okay, no problem, Mr. Gagliardi. Bye. A few days go by. A week goes by. Two weeks go by. I hear nothing. So I end up calling there, and I didn't get the lady's name. I end up calling, and I'm asking for these records a second time, and they're, they're like, well, those records don't exist. Nobody knows anything. And I'm like, well, so what's going on here? They told me that they were off campus. And they said, no, there's nothing here. So, you know, it, it's like all the, the leads get, get cut, you know? So obviously it was off campus. It was obviously being studied in some form because it was different, something they weren't used to. Yeah. I mean, that's what the guy, the guy told me. He said, you know, policy in those days would have been that if she did something beyond the diagnosis of the doctors, then they wouldn't know what to do. That's probably why they archived the records, but they were they existed on one day and then they didn't exist, exist the next. You know, things would have been very different if she'd actually got the, you know, the real help she probably needed, you know, whether it was religious or spiritual help. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. No one interjected. I mean, the police were at her house all the time. I mean, she tried to burn the house down probably nine times. I mean, come on, you know, I mean, and the police were always at her house. And then the mental institution is at her house. And nobody does nothing. And the thing that makes me so angry is that social services never did nothing to help my, I mean, my sister was older and ended up leaving. I mean, she was traumatized by this too, but I got the brunt of it and social services never did nothing. I mean, if this case happened today, I mean, it would be on the news, it would be on CNN, it would be worldwide, you know, and I can't understand how they could even back then, I still can't understand how they could let a child live in a house like that, knowing that they had so many reports of the neighbors calling the police because she was, you know, terrorizing the neighbors and all of these records from, you know, the, the local authorities and the mental institution, you know, and doing nothing. I mean, there was weekly red flags that something, something was wrong. Yeah, and it only escalated as I got into high school. It only escalated. I mean, I was writing my own my own notes to not be at school. I'm I mean, really. And then when I ended up quitting school one month before graduation, they sent me down to the counselors and the counselor said to me, "Is this what you want to do?" And I said, "Yes." And and she said, "Okay then." <laughs> I mean, there, there was there, there was no prying, you know, in into my life, my family's life whatsoever. I mean, it was like on all accounts, the ball was dropped and and the dirt was swept underneath the rug. 
But fair play to you, though, for coming out of all this, you know, level-headed. I know you, you have issues you're dealing with, and you, you probably will forever be dealing with these, you know, but fair play for dealing with it. And um, and you are also, you, you have found some solace in music as well. You're a Latin flamenco and smooth jazz guitarist. Yeah, that's kind of how I make my money because, you know, I can't, I can't hold a nine to five job for 40 hours a week. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not going to say stable, but it's my, you know, the symptoms of my PTSD don't allow me, you know, I mean, I've passed out in the past uh, three, four years, maybe 12 times, you know, because I, I can't deal with stressful situations, you know, and my body just shuts off. That's immediately what it does. It goes straight to my brain and it just shuts me down and I just pass out right there. And if you obviously got help for this? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know really what kind of help it is. It's just masking the problem. It's just, a, I have a general physician that has given me, you know, your normal stuff like uh, antidepressants and, you know, stuff to sleep with. But, you know, it doesn't cure my symptoms, you know, and the thing that I'm so angry about is is that it ruined my life. I mean, I never had an, had a chance to have a career, you know, to have a, to have a, you know a normal life. I mean, I don't own a house, you know, I don't own anything, you know. I, I've been totally dismantled by this mental abuse as a child, which was unnecessary. Very difficult for you. Has been, and, and it continues to be. But uh, you know, I. I try to make the best of it, you know. I, I'm blessed with having two girls and, and six grandchildren, you know. I'll tell you something interesting. It's my kids that really got me to write this book um, because, you know, they have kids and, you know, we don't really have time to sit down over dinner and talk about this stuff, and it's not a subject that's, that's pleasant to begin with. But, uh, you know, I wrote it as kind of a legacy, so – you know, when you've got time and you want to know what happened to, you know, dear old dad, here's, here's what happened. And my grandkids too. But, um, my kids really pushed me to dad, you got to put this out public and kind of what put it over the top, which, you know, made me go, yes, I'm going to make this public was a guy from your area. Um, a guy by the name of Marty Stalker from, from Belfast, um, I had seen his documentary um, Hostage to the Devil with Malachi Martin, you know, the film about Malachi Martin. And I had watched that and I, and I had just, you know, I said, Oh my gosh, my mother had all those same characteristics, you know? And so I had reached out to him thinking, you know, maybe I'll read because he seemed so sympathetic in his documentary. And I said, well, well maybe here's a guy I I could, I could kind of relate to. You know, children of trauma, they they have such a hard time finding other people to relate to. I mean, I know nobody that has a story like this. So I feel like such a loner, you know, like nobody gets me, nobody understands me because I look at the world different. I see things different, you know. So I reached out to Marty and uh, and Marty said, yeah, I'll take a look at it. So I sent him my manuscript. And I think I sent it to him on a Friday and he contacted me on Monday and he said, Michael, you know, this is the craziest story I've ever heard because obviously, you know, the book I go into greater detail and there's a lot of stuff I left out of the book just because it's too horrible, you know, to, to talk about. I mean, I didn't feel like I had to put everything out there. I mean, it's bad enough having to, you know, to read what, what is already there. But uh, he was like a pivotal point in and being somebody other than my family members who believed me, because that's part of the stigma of coming out with a story like this is that, you know, people say, oh, you're just doing it to sell books or or, you know, for attention. And I'm like, I'm the last person that wants attention. I mean, I hide. <laughs> you know, I don't want anything to do with people. I hide, even though it's weird that I play music. but. You know, I play music, and then when I'm done, I'm I'm like Neil Peart, who runs out of the, <laughs> runs out from the gig and jumps in his car and takes off. You know, I don't hang around, I don't party, I don't socialize, I don't do anything like that because I just can't. I, you know, my mind just doesn't work like that. So it, it's been it's been a great struggle, but I'm 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 very grateful for for Marty 
for giving me, you know, his, you know, kind of seal of approval. You know, he kind of told me, he said, Michael, you got to put it out there. Just like your kids said, there could be somebody that's going through this because all of these stories are all under the radar, either because they're not believed or, you know, they're not accepted in society, you know, because the news won't cover it or, or what have you. So it's a very difficult uh, position to be in. And it is something that does occur. Obviously, it's blown out of portion with uh, Hollywood and the movies and stuff. Yes. But, you know, these accounts do happen all over the world. And it's not something which happened back in the 70s and 80s. Even to this day, it still goes on. Yes. And all of it stems from dabbling with the occult, basically. Yes, you, you are so, so correct. There's always some sort of entry point, you know, and it's it's usually occult, occultism, Satanism, Luciferianism. You know, uh, the one thing that this my experience has gained me is that now I go around speaking about this thing. I've been studying it for, you know, 30, 30 some years now and uh, quite knowledgeable on a lot of this, a lot of this stuff and paranormal. You know, the, the TV shows that you see on TV about the paranormal stuff like that that's entertainment you know it's entertainment you know some of it might be might be a little bit a little bit of truth there but it's totally hyped it's totally you know the real stuff is what goes on behind the scenes that that you know nobody wants to be seen you know and um, unfortunately the victims of that are the ones that even though they reach out, you know, it's like you're drowning. I always used to think of myself as a guy who's out in the middle of the sea with my hand up and all these boats are going by and everybody's looking at me, but nobody does anything. Michael, what advice do you have for anyone that's, that's going through something that you did? Well, I think that maybe things would have changed, you know, at a young age for me if I just would have spoke up. But like I said, I didn't know that there was anything wrong. You know, this, that, that was mom, you know, and, you know, children of, of trauma and, you know, you've got things like, uh, what's that syndrome, you know, that, uh, your captor, you start to love your captor and stuff like that. Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Stockholm syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, I never, I never went to school and said, God, you got to see what's going on at my house. It's insane. I never said that. In fact, I was a classic overachiever. You know, won all these academic awards, got A pluses, you know, had stellar, you know, until high school. But, you know, I would tell people, you know, if something like this is going on, you you need to speak up. You need to say something, especially if there's children involved, because they cannot defend themselves. There is help out there, isn't there? You know, people that will will help you, that will know exactly what you're going through. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think a, a classic case is where you guys are. The Enfield poltergeist, you know, even though that's not a poltergeist, which was going on there, but that's another story. But they went to the local authorities and the local authorities, you know, came in and did investigation. They saw that things were abnormal and then they took it to the next level. Unfortunately, in my case, they did nothing and they were at my house all the time. So, you know, you can't give up. You have to speak to somebody who's going to do something. You know, not just be a listener, but be a doer. And because everybody's got a case, you know, if, if this is happening to you, you have a case and you need to find somebody who's sympathetic uh, to what you're going through and, you know, sees you as a victim and not the, you know, not somebody making things up, you know, and, and this is part of the stigma that you've got to fight through to find somebody that actually believes you. Michael, the the author of Devil Take the Hindmost and Devil Take the Hindmost Part to the Aftermath, which is which carries on basically from the pier. Is that right? Yes, yes, correct. Wonderful. I will put links to to Michael's books in the show notes and also on the website. And I also put uh, his website and his YouTube channel. You know, you can hear Michael play the guitar, which I was listening to yesterday, and uh, I, I love this quote from you, Michael. My passion is the emotion spoken through my instrument. Yes, <laughs> that's it. I'm all about the passion. All about the passion. Wonderful. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate you coming on today, Michael, and sharing that for our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it, Nick. You're more than welcome. And keep in touch, all right? All right, my friend. Thank you so much, Nick, and have a great day. Take care of yourself, all right? And I'll, I'll talk soon to you. Okay, my friend. Bye-bye. Okay, take care of yourself, brother.
That is all for this week. Keep updated and connected with the show on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you have an encounter that you'd like to share on the podcast, you can email me at ufochronicles at gmail.com or you can reach out to me via the contact page on my website, ufochroniclespodcast.com. A big thank you to Michael for sharing tonight and thank you all for listening. I will be back next week. Till then, stay safe and keep watching the skies. Goodbye. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.